From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So lots of interesting things happen when the Satanists come to town because the Satanists, more than any other group, push the majority to reckon with the inevitable consequences of this idea that the government should be open to religious symbols, practices, and and expression. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and his books include When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. We've talked about both of those books previously on our program, and we're happy to have him back as our guest. Today we'll be talking about his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Jay Wexler, I'm so glad to have you join us again. Welcome to Things Not Seen. Uh, Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the program again. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Good. I've been such a fan of your books since we first got started around 2012. I had you on to talk about Holy Hullabaloos. And actually, I've been using that book for a recent class that I've been teaching on civil law and canon law. And so it was a joy to revisit that. But one of the things that really struck me between Holy Hullabaloos, which was basically a book about a road trip that you took to the various sites of battlegrounds of the kind of church-state Supreme Court cases that have happened over the last hundred years or so. One of the things that really struck me was how much has changed since that book came out. And that's one of the things that you're dealing with here in your book, Our Non-Christian Nation. And we'll be digging into that as the conversation continues. But as a way of orienting our listeners who may not have heard our previous conversations and who may not be familiar with your work, let's take a couple minutes and talk about you and your background. So you're a professor of law at the Boston University School of Law, and you have a particular interest in the intersection between the First Amendment's attention to religion and where the religious practices of fringe religious groups come into the public sphere. First of all, is that kind of an accurate way of describing where your interest is, or would you say it a different way? Well, I guess I would say I'm interested in religious minorities generally. I don't know if only fringe groups. Uh, I mean, I suppose the more unique and interesting the group or their beliefs are, the more I'm drawn to them. So I see why you use the word fringe. But I, I think I'm generally interested in how religious minorities uh, are supposed to get around in a, in a country that's largely Christian and what role the uh, First Amendment plays and or should play in uh, in protecting minorities. Okay, and so when, when we're talking then, and I appreciate the correction of my phrasing, when we're talking about a religious minority, how would we define that in a couple of sentences? What does that mean in the kind of American political landscape? Well, I 
fairly or not, I treat my approach is that they're whoever's non-Christian is really a minority religion. I understand that there are all sorts of Christians and that some Christians would certainly be properly defined as minorities. But what I'm interested in is uh, are pretty much any religious group or non-religious group, people who have who believe in nothing or who believe in who are secularists, atheists, humanists or whatever. I think that those are those are the minority groups that I'm talking about, basically. So really, anyone who's not Christian, who thinks seriously about the same questions that Christians think about. I appreciate that answer. And and one of the things that I want to make sure that our listeners understand is that in addition to your study of law, am I correct that you actually went and you got a degree in religion as well? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I have a master's degree from the University of Chicago Divinity School. And my plan before I went to law school was to get a PhD from there. I got into religion. I mean, there are a lot of stories that combine to explain how I got to the Divinity School there. Part of it is that I grew up Jewish and was always kind of frustrated by my Hebrew school studies when I was a kid. But then when I was in college, I got really interested in Chinese religions and Chinese philosophy. And that's what brought me to the Divinity School at University of Chicago. So I, I was going, that's what I was going to do. I was going to get a PhD in religion focusing on Chinese and other Asian religions. Unfortunately, my language skills never really got good enough that I could could I ever see myself contributing in any real useful way as a religion PhD. So I gave that up and went to law school. But the fact remains that I take religion very seriously, and I think religious freedom is extremely important. And I like thinking about religion and talking about religion. So I'm not an anti-religion person. I, I think some people might jump to that conclusion if they just sort of look at my the titles of my books or something like that. But uh, but I'm actually very interested in religion, concerned with the religion, and I respect religion quite a lot. So it is religion and law that I'm interested in together. Well, and so let's explore that just a little bit. So in the law school setting, are you able to teach classes on religion and the law? Like, is that a, a subspecialty that a person studying to be a lawyer could go into? I have in the past taught what I called law and religion seminars. I've done that a few times, and you certainly can do it. And when I teach it, I don't teach it as law and religion-y as I could. When, uh, even when I teach a, a course that I call law and religion, I still spend most of my time talking about the First Amendment. But I do also branch out a little and talk about, for example, religious lawyering. How does somebody who, who has a, a serious faith commitment, how does that affect their, their lawyering? Are there ethical issues that, that pop up there? I talk about Sharia law, for example, not so much from a U.S. legal perspective, but simply as, as a body of religious law and other things that, that are more focused on religion than law. But I tend to stick with the law because that's that is what I know most about. But I always pepper whatever course I'm teaching, whether it's the law and religion course or First Amendment course, with the stories that I've picked up from from these books, from going around and talking to people who whose beliefs are very different from my own. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's been on the show several times before to talk about his other books, but today we're talking about his most recent work, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. 
You made a comment just a moment ago that I want to linger on for a second. You said that when you're teaching some of these seminars, one of the things that you discuss is the possibility of how a religious person would go about the practice of law. And I just love to hear a little bit about that. So when when you're talking about that with students who want to be lawyers, how do you describe that? Like what what difference does it make if a lawyer is religious or not? Well, I mean, we usually, we don't, I mean, I suppose when somebody could do a seminar all about religious lawyering, I don't do that. I sort of, so I sort of focus on conflicts that might come up and ask, what should a religious person do in this situation? So I actually have, I think in the past, used an article that was written by Amy Coney Barrett, who might be our next Supreme Court justice, depending on the timing of our next opening, who wrote an article and and actually got a lot of grief for it when she was before the Senate, when she was nominated for the Seventh Circuit. But she wrote an article with a judge who was, uh, they're both Catholic. And the question was, what does a Catholic judge do if they're involved in a death penalty case? You know, or you could extend it to an abortion case or, and you could, you know, think of other analogs from other traditions. I think, and other kinds of conflicts. But let's say you're a Catholic lawyer, you're a Catholic judge, and you have a death penalty case, and you have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, but you also have a very sincere religious belief that the that capital punishment is unjust. So should you recuse yourself from the case? Do you approach the case any differently because of your religious beliefs? That That's the that's one kind of thing that I remember. I, I haven't taught this particular unit in a long time, but that's one thing that I find really interesting. And so I, I've taught that a couple of times. And so now as we're sort of turning towards this book, Our Non-Christian Nation, I think it'll also help if we give our listeners a little bit of background about kind of the state of play when we were last together talking about these subjects. So uh, there was a kind of turn that happened around 1990 that changed the landscape of religious protections in the United States. And if you could just briefly walk us through that, and I'm thinking particularly of Employment Division v. Smith and then the kind of steps to try and establish the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the the kind of fracas that followed from that. <laughs> the fracas, the hullabaloo, the... What are some other... Okay, right. So uh, so Smith, yeah, Smith is a landmark decision. The Supreme Court has struggled over decades with the question of, does a religious believer have a right to an exemption from a completely general law that applies to everybody if the religious believer thinks that that law would violate their religious conscience, basically. So in other words, if I'm Native American and I believe I need to use peyote as part of my religious practice, but there's a general law that says nobody may use peyote, do I have a free exercise clause right to an exemption from the no peyote law? And the Supreme Court went back and forth on that question. First, it said there is no right. Then it said there absolutely is a right. And then it kind of said there's sort of a right. And then in 1990, in this Employment Division versus Smith case that you mentioned, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, the Supreme Court said there's no right. No right to a First Amendment exception from a general law simply because somebody believes their religion requires them to do something. And that was very controversial at the time that it was decided. And it was kind of over turned by the Congress, which passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which you mentioned. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was later struck down on other constitutional grounds as it applies to the states, but it does still apply to the federal government. And the Supreme Court is poised to reconsider the Smith decision uh, in a case coming up this fall. So there's a lot of interesting things on the horizon for uh, for what's going to happen 
between uh, in church and state context. I mean, this is mostly a free exercise clause uh, issue, but it's uh, uh, certainly related to the establishment clause issues that I talk about in the non-Christian nation book. Well, and so maybe we should just take a moment uh, before we go to break, and we should clarify what we mean when we use these two terms, free exercise and establishment, and that will help to kind of frame what we're going to be talking about in the next two segments as we move on. So if you could, just briefly, when we talk about the First Amendment's free exercise clause and establishment clauses, what are we talking about? Right. So the First Amendment, the first words of the First Amendment say that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So those are the religion clauses of the First Amendment. And the first part of that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we call that the Establishment Clause. And it is about placing limits on the government's ability to support, promote, or advance religion. The specific contours of that are determined by the Supreme Court, but that's what the Establishment Clause is basically about. And then the second half of the Religion Clause says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion, basically. And what that's what we call the Free Exercise Clause. And the Free Exercise Clause is roughly about placing limits on the government's authority to restrict religious belief or religious practice. So the free exercise clause is about kind of protecting religion from government interference, and the establishment clause is kind of about protecting or stopping the government from promoting or advancing religion. They sometimes work together, the two clauses. Sometimes they're at tension or at odds with each other. Some people think they're both serving the same purpose. Other people think that they're serving different purposes. But the fact that they're both smooshed together there in those 16 words makes Uh, interpretation of the First Amendment sometimes quite tricky. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've talked to him before on the show about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. Today we have him back to talk about his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. And we'll be getting into that as our program continues. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've had him on the program before to talk about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. Today we're discussing his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Well, before the break, we were talking about the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, and we were also talking about the kind of uh, legacy of a Supreme Court decision called Employment Division v. Smith. Now, I'm going to try and characterize something, and I want to see if I have it right. My understanding is that in the wake of Employment Division v. Smith, the free exercise of religion, particularly for minority religions, as we've talked about, was severely curtailed. Is that correct, or am I off base with that? 
Uh, I think it was significantly curtailed, yes. Um, as a result of Employment Division versus Smith, a minority religion, uh, believer in, minor- in some minority religion could not claim a First Amendment right to be exempt from the general law. General laws, sort of by definition, tend not to take minority positions into account because they're created by democratic majorities. So the decision was seen as fairly negative for religious minorities, not that religious minorities were in a great position before employment division versus Smith, but they were in a worse position afterwards. And now, as I said at the top of the show, looking at your book, Holy Hullabaloos, which is a compendium of all of these Supreme Court cases that have to do with religious free exercise and religious establishment, if you were to just look at where Holy Hullabaloos ends, you would tend to think that the post-employment division v. Smith landscape is one where pretty much religion is curtailed from the public sphere. And when I turn now to your recent book, non-Christian nation, I was surprised to find that a lot has changed in the 10 years since Holy Hullabaloo's came out. And so what are some of the ways that the religious landscape has changed in that time? What what are some of the things that you are now focusing on in this more recent book? Well, so in the recent book, I'm focusing on how the Supreme Court has, uh, in addition to kind of undermining the free exercise clause through Smith, has also really undermine the establishment clause in a variety of different areas. And basically, as a result, treats religion almost like any other belief system and says, uh, if you look at both the sides of the coin together, the establishment clause and the free exercise clause, it's almost as though the Supreme Court saying on the free exercise clause side, religion is just like every other kind of belief system. It doesn't deserve a special, any special treatment. And the same thing is true on the establishment clause side, that the government puts up a monument to religion, that's not really a big problem. Or the government starts off its town board meeting, for example, with a prayer. That's not really any different from starting it off any other way. And so there's no church-state separation problem going on there. And so if you look at it all together, I think you see that the court has moved more and more towards treating religion like any other belief system on both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause side. And the result has been that religious minorities don't really get an exemption from general laws, but religious majorities do get to take advantage of public spaces for their displays and monuments and public money for their schools and uh, and things like that. So that's that's what's happened between Holy Hell of Blues and Smith. Uh, there's, there are other interesting things that have happened too since Holy Hell of Blues, which are not so much the topic of non-Christian nation. I just mentioned like the, the people, I think, view Smith in a very different way now than they did in 1990, given the sort of the cultural shifts in the United States over the past 10, 15, 20 years, such that Smith has become actually kind of more palatable to liberals and less so to conservatives. I want to pick up on one thread that you said in your answer there, and that is this notion of the kind of public expressions of religion, the kind of establishment clause side of this. One of the things that was really interesting to me in your book, Our Non-Christian Nation, is this notion that Christian organizations have become very comfortable with the government inviting them to do things like invocations and prayers before public meetings. 
And where the government becomes suddenly much less comfortable is when a minority religion steps into that same space and says, yes, and since you do that for Christians, you need to also have that same space available for us. We would like to offer as a member of the Baha'i faith, as a member of the Hindu faith, as a member even of the Church of Satan, we would like to step into that space as a religion and offer an invocation as well. What is the difference between the way that governments at both the federal and the state levels and local levels are reacting to Christians moving into that space to give invocations versus these minority religions? Right. So the Establishment Clause decisions that the Supreme Court has rendered, they're all about Christianity. They're all about Christians who are seeking access to public institutions, money, property, etc., And they've won over the years. And so, therefore, as a result, Christians have taken advantage of these opinions and have done the things that you you mentioned, giving the invocations, putting up monuments, getting money for their organizations. And in response to that, and this is what the book is mostly about, religious minorities have looked at that and said, we can take advantage of these opinions also. There's nothing in these opinions that, that means that they're formally limited to Christians. And in fact, It's kind of a bedrock principle of the First Amendment, both religion and the speech clauses, that the government can't discriminate on the basis of somebody's viewpoint. So Christians get to do all these things and take advantage of public money and institutions, et cetera. Then religious minorities get to do that as well. And so there's been this movement by minorities who always had the possibility of applying for government money or trying to give invocations and things like that, but really had not wanted to do that because... They were much more interested in fighting for separation of church and state in the courts. But now, with that option kind of off the table, these religious minorities have said, we want to take advantage of these opinions that were written for Christians and use them for our benefit as well. And then, as the book describes in some detail, the reaction of majorities to the minority demands to participate on equal footing with the Christian majority oftentimes takes the form of hostility and discrimination. So... It's great when the Christian gives the invocation, but then all of a sudden when the Wiccan gets to give the invocation, people start freaking out. Or an atheist puts up a symbol on government property next to the Christian symbol, and all of a sudden the majority realizes, wow, I guess if religion can be part of public life, that's not just us, that's everyone. And so some of the times the government reluctantly allows the minority to take part in public life. Sometimes sometimes they're welcome. Sometimes the majority welcomes uh, minorities, but it's, it's at least as common that the majority reacts with hostility or tries to even prohibit the minorities from taking advantage of these cases, which then requires litigation. Sometimes what happens, and this is maybe the most interesting thing, is that you have a group like the Satanic Temple who really, really push the buttons of Christian majorities, as you can imagine, the satanic temple comes to town and says, we want to give a satanic invocation. And the government, when they realize that they sort of have to let the Satanists do what the Christians do, they shut down the entire government program altogether so that nobody gets to give an invocation. And we end up with kind of a completely secular space. So, so it's a fascinating phenomenon, both the minorities taking advantage of these cases and then the majority's reaction to the minorities taking advantage of the cases and then how things get worked out in the courts. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law. He's been on our program before discussing his books, Holy Hullabaloo's and When God Isn't Green. Today we're talking about his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. 
So there's something about what you just said that I, I want to linger on for a moment. This notion that they will even shut down the public space to stop these minority religions from having access to the same access that Christians have. There's, there's an aspect of that that has been happening more and more that I want to ask you about, because sometimes it's not simply a matter of shutting down the public space, but it's even shutting down the possibility of acknowledging that these other belief systems are religions. And let me explain what I mean. So we have some examples of lawmakers at the federal level who have gone on record saying that Islam, for example, is not a religion. It's a political system. And so I guess my first question for you to follow up on this is, how does the government define what a religion is, or does it? <laughs> well, we, that's, yeah, that's uh, quite a morass, isn't it? I know what you mean about Islam, and I have Asma uh, Uddin's book here somewhere about how Islam is, in fact, a religion. I was looking for it, but I can't find it. But, um, but yeah, so how does the government define religion? How do I even begin to answer that? So we'll start with the Supreme Court and the courts. The Supreme Court has never defined religion, uh, even though it's right there in the First Amendment. It's fascinating that it hasn't, but... You know, try to define it. This, I always start my my law and religion class off with this question: What is religion? How would you define religion? Can you come up with a definition of religion that includes all the things you kind of intuitively think are religion and excludes things that you intuitively think are not religion and is sensitive to minority views? And it's just very, very difficult. The government, you know, the IRS has some guidelines for how to define religion. It kind of decides that almost everything is a religion. And the, there's a theoretical problem in there, which is it's almost as though the Constitution prohibits the government from defining religion. Because if every time the government defines religion, it's saying religion means this or, and it doesn't mean that, there's an argument to be made that that itself is an establishment of a certain kind of view about what religion is, and it's a violation of the Establishment Clause. So it's really, really complicated. Now, if you're talking about how a particular government, an agency, or a city council decides whether something's religion, I think there are probably all sorts of ways that somebody decide that a, that a group of people decide whether something is a religion. And if it doesn't get challenged and go to a court, then I suppose whatever that government unit, whether it's the Phoenix City Council or the House of Representatives or whatever, if there's no judicial review, then it's whatever the government says is religion is religion, I suppose. I, I mean, attempts to say that Islam is not a religion are, to me, just ridiculous. I don't really know what the basis for that claim is. It's certainly pretty much any definition of religion that you would find in almost any related field from sociology to theology would anthropology, psychology, would define Islam as a religion. So I think the attempts to say that mainstream religions are not, in fact, religions are, are really losing the arguments. But it is a very complicated and difficult question that you raise. I, I don't think I've even come close to scratching the surface on that, but it's worth thinking about for sure. Well, let me make sure that I've heard you correctly. So if a government, like say a city government, invites ministers to come and give prayers before city council meetings, but they go and they, and this is an example from your book, Holy Hullabaloo's, they take a, a page from the Yellow Pages and they mark out the Jehovah's Witnesses and they mark out all of the Islamic houses of worship, they mark out synagogues, and the only list that they pull from is a list of Christian ministers, maybe even only Protestants 
Protestant ministers, they're already making a decision about what counts as a religion for the purpose of inviting people to come and pray. And and if I'm hearing you correctly, the only way that that gets corrected is if someone then begins to challenge that at the court level. First of all, have I heard that correctly? You did hear that correctly. I think uh, I stand by that. You know, I, one can use the media and public you know, pressure to argue that the prayer practice should include people other than Christians. But if the if the government is really adamant about only inviting Christians because it doesn't think other belief systems are true religions, then really the only recourse is a, is a lawsuit. Yes. But a lawsuit that would challenge a government's decision that Islam is not a religion for purposes of deciding who gets to give an invocation is a lawsuit that is a clear winner. I'm sure there's a court here and there might come out the other way, but it is a very clear, in my view, and I think almost every expert would agree that Islam is a religion. And if you allow Christians to give invocations, you must let Muslims give invocations as well. What gets really tricky, and I'm actually writing a paper about this right now for a a really interesting conference that's coming up in September at Roger Williams University School of Law. What about a jurisdiction that excludes atheists from their invocation practices by saying, hey, you know, invocations have historically only been done by religions. And while we might have to accept Muslims or Hindus or goodness gracious, even Satanists, we certainly don't have to allow atheists because atheists don't believe in a divine being. And that's sort of the hallmark of what a invocation is. And there are now a few decisions on that. And a couple of courts have said that it's okay for the government to exclude atheists from invocation programs. And I think that that, that's terrible. Those are terrible decisions. And that's what I'm writing about, actually, like right before this, we got on the air here. And if I may, what would your argument be for why that is a terrible decision? Well, I think that because it's an exclusion on the basis of viewpoint. In other words, it might be the case that it doesn't violate the establishment clause for government to start off its meetings with a prayer. I think it is, but the court has clearly said it's not. But that's a separate question from whether the government in its invocation practice can decide that some people get to give invocations based on their viewpoint and others don't get to because they have a different kind of viewpoint. Uh, And that's a sort of a fundamental First Amendment free speech principle. And the Supreme Court has said in, in these cases, particularly this most recent case, Town of Greece versus Galloway, which I talk about at length in the book, that a government unit that has a a prayer practice must administer that practice in a non-discriminatory fashion. And I think that means that you have to allow not just different religious beliefs, but also specifically non-religious beliefs, beliefs that address the same questions that religion addresses, but answers them without reference to content that is typically understood to be religious, like a divine being or faith or thing or something like that. That's the only way to accomplish true pluralism and true non-discrimination in this context. And so I think that it should be held to violate the First Amendment free speech clause, if not the free exercise of religion or establishment clause for the government to exclude atheists in that way. There have been hundreds of secular invocations given around the country since this decision came out in 2014, 2015. And one thing that I'm going to try to show in this article is that they those are really meaningful, important. Those secular invocations are important contributions to religious pluralism in the United States. And it would be it's a big mistake, I think, to exclude them from the public square. 
Well, and in your book, Our Non-Christian Nation, you actually go and you meet with leaders of the Free Thought Society and with atheists and with people who are representatives of the Church of Satan and the Temple of Set, and they have all been trying in their various ways to enter this public space and to do things like give invocations and to participate in these in these public activities. What are some examples of when they have been able to do that? What has the reaction been when they have been able to give an invocation or to put up a statue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just want to be clear that the people I spoke with are members of the Satanic Temple, TST, which is a, a relatively new group that started in 2012 and is, is distinct from the Church of Satan, which is uh, Anton LaVey's San Francisco 60s group, which still exists, but they don't like each other. But it's the Satanic Temple that is the Satanic group that has been, that is asked to give invocations and is asked to put up monuments on public property and, and the like. I have talked to them a lot. I know a number of members of the Satanic Temple. And as you said, I've talked to atheists and others too, not the Temple of Set, but, but, but atheists. And I've seen invocations given by atheists. And so what, the question is what happens when they're able to give the invocation or, or participate in, in public life. Often, well, there's a difference between the atheists and the Satanists. Atheists, usually the, the Christian majority reluctantly allows the atheists to put up a symbol or to give an invocation. I don't think too many Christians are psyched about that, but they do it. These examples that I were talking about before, to the contrary. When the Satanists come, though, that's when people go berserk. It's something about the satanic iconography and, and, you know, the fact that it comes from the same tradition, really, and that people have grown up with the idea of Satan as everything that's bad, that causes people to react in a unique way to Satanists when Satanists ask to put up their symbols or give an invocation. So there have been some Satanist invocations. And there have been some Satanist symbols going up on public property. There have been even an after-school Satan groups in public schools. And usually they're met with extreme hostility from the community. Sometimes the the invocation, uh, I like to show this video of a Satanic invocation from Pensacola, Florida, uh, I believe, where the Christians in the audience just had to be cleared out of the the boardroom because they were saying the, the Lord's Prayer and wouldn't let the Satanists give his invocation. That's the kind of thing that happens when Satanists get involved. Or the Satanist display is put up and the next day it's torn down, that sort of thing. So I, in fact, I, there's a story in the book about how I went to a public park where there was going to be a Satanist monument and there was a lady who was pouring holy water all over the park. So lots of interesting things happen when the Satanists come to town because the Satanists, more than any other group, push the majority to reckon with the inevitable consequences of this idea that the government should be open to religious symbols, practices, and, and expression. Or not expression, let's keep it with symbols and invocations. Because to a Satanist, a Christian invocation is incredibly offensive. And to a Christian, a Satanist invocation is incredibly offensive. It's the same thing. And so if you're going to have one, you have to have both of them. And that hits people really hard. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today with Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've talked to him before on the show about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. Today we're discussing his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. 
Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've talked to him before on the program about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. Today, we're discussing his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Well, you make an interesting observation in your book, Our Non-Christian Nation, that I want to dig into a little bit. What you say there is that the response of a lot of people to the question about kind of the role of religion in public life is simply to say there should be no religion in public life and to just make the space of our shared public discourse completely secular, completely devoid of religion. And even though you have an intellectual understanding of that position, you have some reasons why you think that that position is a non-starter. And so I'd like to invite you to sort of give us your reasons why we cannot actually right now have a completely secular space devoid of religion in our public sphere. Well, there are two things I'd say. One is it's, it's simply impossible to separate government and religion entirely. People have the right to express their own religious beliefs, and if they happen to do so in a public space, there's, that's a protective expression. But to the extent that when we talk about religion in public square, we're talking about active government support in some way of religion in the ways that we've been kind of chatting about so far in terms of the government, for example, making public money available to religious organizations alongside other organizations, or the government uh, public school opening up its classrooms for use by after-school groups, including religious after-school groups. Those issues, I argue in the book, while they are, I would have preferred them to have been decided differently in a way that would have probably kept religion out of those government programs. The fact is the Supreme Court has moved on from that question. And in all of these areas that we've been talking about, the the Supreme Court has issued decisions saying, as long as the government is non-discriminatory, it can support religion in these various ways, make government money available to religion, make government property and institutions available to religion. And while it may have been possible a few years ago to kind of see our way towards a more separationist jurisprudence were there the, the Supreme Court to be staffed differently. Like if Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016, some of those decisions, there might have been some ability to reverse or pull back some of those decisions. Since Trump won and put Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, I think we're stuck with those decisions for at least 20 years, if not more. So 
the point I make in the book is that this kind of fight for separation in the specific way that I'm talking about is kind of over for now. And, you know, we can bring lawsuits saying that the government shouldn't put up this Ten Commandment monument or this cross monument or that the government shouldn't be able to fund voucher schools in certain situations but not other situations. But for the most part, those controversies have been decided in favor of religion by the Supreme Court. And I don't see the Supreme Court going back anyway soon. So the question is, what else can a religious minority or an atheist who otherwise would would believe in a secular public square, what else could those people do? And that's where this movement to participate alongside the majority comes in. And so that's, the book is about describing that and then supporting that as at least a good second best, if not in some ways, maybe almost even better than a secular public square, although that, that gets a little tricky. So just to make sure that I've heard you correctly, so given the current status of the Supreme Court and given the fact that we currently have a Republican in office who is likely to continue to support and push the Supreme Court in its status quo, it's unlikely that we would see a public sphere evacuated of religious practice. And so if I've understood your argument, one thing is just that's the fact on the ground that we have to deal with. And then your question in the book is, what do we do with that as religious minorities. And and the answer that many of these religious minorities have come to is, if they're going to open the door for the majority religion, then we would like to also walk through that door, and we would like to robustly participate in the public sphere as well. And if I've heard you correctly, and if I've read you correctly in the book, you think that that's the right response, that instead of being timid, minorities should be bold and even more public than they have been in the past. Now, first of all, have I gotten that correct from you? Exactly right. I'm, you know, I don't say that all minorities should necessarily be bold and try to participate in public life. There are some good reasons <laughs> that that the Establishment Clause is meant to bring about. That there are good reasons for for religions themselves maybe not wanting to be supported by government. But to the extent that they're that we're not talking about religions like that, yes, they should be bold. I should have just answered that by saying yes. <laughs> I don't know why. All right, yes. You got it right. (laughs) Well, and if that's the case, and we see then minority religions stepping into this public space with more and more boldness, what's the danger for those minority religions? Or is there a danger for them to step in and try and take this franchise alongside the majority Christian religions? Is there any downside or is it all upside? Well, I suppose one of the dangers is you get a lot of pushback, and sometimes that pushback is really hostile. In other words, it takes a lot of courage to do what the Satanic Temple has done or what the atheists done or the Wiccans who wanted to give invocations because the hostility is palpable. For example, when the Satanic Temple was going to put up a veterans monument in a little park in Minnesota, hundreds of Catholics from all over the country came and protested against them. And when, for example, the Satanic Temple brought their Baphomet statue their nine-foot bronze occult goat-like statue down to Arkansas as part of a, a display about how they would like that monument to be put up on public property in Arkansas. The members of the Satanic Temple had to, had to wear, or at least the spokesperson, Lucian Greaves, had to wear a bulletproof vest. And there was a real risk you know, of violence breaking out. So I want to make it clear that certainly in some places in the country, Being a religious minority, demanding access to public space and other public benefits is dangerous and risky. So so there's that. You know, I I don't think uh, religious minorities need to be worried about being sort of co-opted by the government in the way that Christians, I think, should be worried. 
So that I don't think that's necessarily an issue. I suppose one could say if minorities make a practice of participating in public life, there's a danger that if the bench were to become more, say, liberal again or more amenable to separationism, that the, the case for separationism might look a little weaker if minorities have been participating without incident for many years. So those are some other things I've thought I, that, that come up in response to your question. But the main thing is, it's just dangerous and risky in the environment, in this environment, to insist on minority rights sometimes. Well, and if we think about that, then, if we think about the ways in which these minority religions put themselves at risk when they do reach out and assert their rights, what is it that makes them keep doing it? What would drive a minority religion to take that risk? What good do they see coming from it, even though the risk is there? Well, I think it's similar to why people have exercised their rights under difficult circumstances in all sorts of areas, from race to gender to sexual orientation. These people who, the religious minorities who are participating in public life despite the risks, believe that it is their fundamental entitlement under the U.S. Constitution to be treated equally and to be treated with equal dignity by the government. And I think that the exercise of that equality is meaningful and extremely important to a lot lot of individuals who feel empowered when they do participate alongside the Christian majority by giving it a vacation or something like that. So I think it is asserting minority rights in a democratic society is hard for any minority. And religious minorities uh, are no different. But religious minorities are also no different, I think, in their interest in vindicating their equality and exercising their equality. So I, I guess that's the that's the answer. Now, I mean, another answer that I've heard several times as I researched the book is that by participating in public life, religious minorities get more airtime and become more recognizable to the general public. People understand what it means to be an atheist or what it means to be a member of the satanic temple and that it's not necessarily what they thought it was. That, in fact, oh, look, atheists can believe in moral treatment of other individuals, even though there's no God, for example, or the satanic temple can believe in justice and equality, even though they believe in, uh, in Satan as a symbol of great meaning. And so there's this kind of educative function of participating in the public square. People learn, hope the idea anyways, is people will will learn something about these religious traditions, not fear them as much, not think that the world is coming to an end because they, they have to be participating in public life alongside the majority. And so I think that that's a big part of it too. And education, I heard that a lot, both from the Satanic Temple and from Wiccans and atheists and Hindus, sort of across the board. So those, I think, are the two main benefits of participating in public life if you're a religious minority. One is you get to exercise your equality that you are given under the Constitution. And second is that you provide the opportunity for people to learn and become more familiar and hopefully more understanding of your religious tradition. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've talked to him on the show before about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloo's. Today we're discussing his recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation. Well, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that the Supreme Court is poised to revisit that landmark case from 1990, Employment Division v. Smith. And so I guess as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I'd like you to look ahead for me and for our listeners so that we can kind of understand what is on the horizon for the Supreme Court with regard to religious freedom issues. Right. So there are 
several cases going on at the moment. There's two cases at the Supreme Court right now that the court has already heard and will decide by June. One of them is about the scope of a religious institution's authority to fire their ministers without worrying about anti-discrimination laws. That's the so-called ministerial exception case. There's another case about whether the state of Montana can have a, a school voucher program and exclude religious schools from being recipients in that program. That case is called Espinoza. So those two cases will be decided this term, and they're really important. The case that will be decided or argued and then decided next term, that's the case where Smith might be revisited. So look for that case as being one of the bigger cases. It comes from Philadelphia next term. And and who knows what will happen? I, I have not gotten around. There are enough cases going on now this term that I haven't looked at the, the case closely for next term yet. But it's going to be a blockbuster potentially. I mean, Smith could be reversed. It could be reaffirmed. It could be changed a little. Everything is is up for grabs, I think. So let's say that someone who's listening has suddenly gotten the bug, and now they're very, very interested in religious freedom issues and religious freedom jurisprudence, and now they want to start kind of finding out about the Supreme Court. Certainly they should start with your book, Holy Hullabaloo's. Certainly they should read Our Non-Christian Nation. Both of them are wonderful foundations for beginning to learn about what's in play with regard to these issues. But once they've digested those books, where should they go next? How should they deepen their knowledge about the Supreme Court, particularly around issues of religious freedom and religious exercise? You know, the best place, I think, to go for the cases that are pending that have been argued or will be argued to follow along with that is a great website called SCOTUS blog. The only trick is that you go to that page and you just have to find the case that you're interested in. And in in other words, Espinoza, for example, it's fairly easy to navigate that website. And and that website will bring you, if you put in Espinoza, for example, into the search bar, it'll take you to a a page which has articles. And usually many of the articles are very publicly oriented. This is a blog that practitioners look at, but also people who are just generally interested in the court like uh, look at too. So you can learn a lot about the specifics of those cases, usually in plain language. There is, in fact, for every case, a plain language description of, uh, of what the case is about and what happened at the oral argument. It's very user-friendly and helpful. So I would go to SCOTUS blog and just look up the name of the cases that you're interested in. Espinoza is an example. Fulton is an example. But that's how, that's what I would do. Well, so your book, Holy Hullabaloo's, you took a road trip and you explored these different locations of these landmark Supreme Court cases from the 20th century. And then in your book, When God Isn't Green, you turned your vision to sort of the international field and you looked at places where religious practice and international environmental laws came into conflict. And now with our non-Christian nation, this most recent book, you've come back to the United States and you're looking now at, as you said, kind of establishment clause issues. So it's clear that you have kind of a continued interest in these kinds of questions. So one of my final questions to you will be, as we're looking ahead to these changing landscapes at the Supreme Court, are you thinking now about a new book? And if so, kind of where would you plant your flag in terms of what you'd be researching and writing about with regard to these religious practice issues? 
That's a good question. I, w- I, I mean, I am, I'm working on a new book, but it's not, it's not about religion at all. But <laughs> so I'm sort of taking a break. I do some write things in the middle of the religion books to take a break from the religion. So right now I'm writing a book about marijuana law, for example, but I'm sure I will come back to religion. And I guess it'll be determined what, what I write about will depend on what goes on, I guess, in the court in these few years. There's going to be, I think, as a result of this term, next term, and in other terms, I'm sure in the near future, there'll be a lot of changes. That's the great thing about this field is that it's always changing and there are always fascinating questions that pop up. So I guess I don't have a uh, in my head a topic for the next religion book, but uh, I'm not worried about finding a topic when I decide to get back to it, in other words. Well, Jay Wexler, I have to say, every time that you're on the program, it's a delight for me. I love your books. And as I've mentioned at the top of the show, I use your books when I teach because they're wonderful resources. They're blend of both humor, but also the deep dive into the details of these very important issues for our shared civic life. I just think that they're unparalleled in terms of both enjoyment and learning. And so I'm always grateful when you write a new one because I always learn from it. But then as soon as I've gotten done reading it, I want to get you back on the show. So I just want to say, first of all, how grateful I am that you take the time to uh, write these books and write them so well. But then I want to also thank you for taking the time to speak to me and my listeners today. Well, I really appreciate those words. They're really, really (laughs) I'm all warm and fuzzy now. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad that they're helpful. And I'm glad that you enjoyed them. And I love the show. And I, I'm glad that you keep inviting me back. And I hope, hope if I write something else, I get to come back. It's always great talking to you. Your questions are fantastic. And it really leads to a good conversation about, uh, you know, the, the substance of the book, which is not always the, the case. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, and we've talked to him before on the show about his books, When God Isn't Green and Holy Hullabaloos. Today we've been talking about his most recent book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.